0: And welcome to this episode of canines talking sense. I'm your host as usual, Cameron Ford. We are out here in beautiful scent city, Las Vegas. And today we're going to talk with a friend of mine that lives local out here. And I wanted to share his story or let him tell his story because it matches what a lot of you have Gone through or want to go through, I should say, those that want to become canine handlers, those that want to become uh, professional detection dog handlers. So, without waiting any further, Tony, welcome to the show. And I, you go by Tony, but for the show, yeah. Anthony Tran, correct?
1: Yeah, that'll, that'll be work.
0: Okay. And I know you so much, much longer than that, yeah, right? Yeah. So, well, thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. So, um, I guess, you know, first just tell people what you do and then we'll kind of go from there and I'll ask the questions of what I know many people are wanting to know to how right. you got where you're at.
1: Well, I currently work at the Venetian Resorts. Uh, we have a canine unit there and I'm currently the uh, training
0: supervisor there. And how long have you been in canine and start like, how did you get there? Like, what's your story? Like, what did you start off at? And then okay. how did you get to the training position at Venetian?
1: Uh so it started about probably six years ago um, at the time I was in the military. So I was never a dog handler in the military or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just in, you know, a regular MP in the military. Uh, then I did some contract work. And then um, once I got back to Vegas, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't really you know, much use for you know, prior MP slash contractor. So I pretty much just started off you know, at the bottom of the barrel <clears> throat> working throat> nightclub security uh, at the Wynn. Okay. And then from there, I just kind of worked my, my, my way up. Uh, into regular security and then armed security, and then eventually canine mm-hmm. uh, actually took me four tries before uh-huh. I got the position. Um, then I, I, once I was at the wind canine unit, I was there for about approximately three years. Um, I started really you know, liking the job and loving it. I started to get a passion for it mm-hmm. and I wanted to I wanted to grow a little bit more uh, doing canine. however, unfortunately there wasn't a lot of room to grow at the win. Mm-hmm. so then at the time, the Venetian Resorts, which is right across the street from us at, at the Wynn, they were uh, hiring for canine handlers, um, they were actually they are actually the only property on the Strip that actually has dual-purpose canines. Mm. So that definitely uh, piqued my interest. So I said, "Hey, I'm going to apply for it." And you know, I got to, I t- I t- I two interviews. Mm-hmm. I got the position. So uh, I, I transferred over to Venetian. I was a canine handler there for about approximately about a year. Then I applied for the lead position there. Uh, which pretty much as a lead, you have the responsibility of running your own shift. So I ran the graveyard shift there for about, I'd say, about two years or so. And then a training supervisor position opened up, and that's when I jumped on that position.
0: So for those that may not know what dual purpose is, dual purpose is when they do patrol work, there's some biting aspect and detection aspect. Now, when you started off at the Wynn first, how many years were you working security before you became a handler? How long did you have to like wait before that opportunity came around?
1: Oh, geez. I don't remember. Really, let me try to think. Uh, probably three years. Okay. Three to four years. That so not
0: while. too different than like what typically happens in the law enforcement community is okay. uh, you become a cop, you have to work the road, right. work patrol shifts, all that kind of stuff, and then Usually around the three-year mark is when uh, most agencies will say, okay, yeah, you've you've got some experience being a cop. Now you can go be a canine. So you kind of went through the same thing. But the part that makes it, I think, relatable for some people is it's security, which means if you didn't have prior law enforcement and prior military, even though you did have prior military, but it wasn't related to dogs. And that's what I think a lot of people look at as a hurdle. They think – Oh, well, I was never a cop. I didn't work a dog as a cop. I didn't right. work a cop or dog as a military member. So I don't stand a chance in getting a job as a, uh, a canine handler anywhere. And you, you kind of showed that you can. It's funny because I thought the same thing. After applying once and twice, I was like, man, this is,
1: you know, but I was like, I want this job. Like, yeah. And I was just persistent. And unfortunately, for the fourth time, uh, I finally got the position. So.
0: so if I can ask, what was the things that held you up the first couple of times it was just they just picked Different people's uh, lack qualify. of experience. Yeah, there you go.
1: Right, because you know, uh, if when you want to get into that uh, line of work, usually they look for some sort of some sort of experience. Mm-hmm. But then the question you have to ask yourself is, well, where do I get that experience? Where do I start? Yeah.
0: Right. So. So you hadn't done any dog things prior to that, other than just wanting to be. Did you hang around the MPs that worked their MWD handlers when you were in the service or did you? No, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, it wasn't one of those, you know, I want to grow up to be a
1: dog handler. Yeah. I was just at a point in my life was like, I need to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. I only have military experience. I only have a, you know, a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. I don't really have, you know, a lot under my belt. Yeah. But then when I saw the handlers working their dogs, I was like, it kind of piqued my interest. I wasn't like fully, you know, committed yet, but I was like, hey, I wanted to change something up. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to move up. Mm-hmm. Right? Because at the time, you know, I was planning on getting married, purchasing a house, so you know, I just can't keep working in you know, regular security. Yeah. Um but then once I got into it, yeah, that, that was the end of it, man. Now <laughs> I'm stuck.
0: So <laughs> you got hooked into it pretty quick. Definitely, yeah. The um now your first dog and you was yours a bomb or a firearms detection it was dog? Explosive. It? Yeah. Explosive, okay. So you did explosive detection. Was it a pointy ear or a floppy ear dog? Pointy ear, yeah, with yep. a
1: ninety, ninety five ninety five pound male. Okay. So you jumped right in with a
0: pretty strong dog. Now, were you the first handler for this dog? No, I was not. Okay. So you got the dog that had been handled by somebody else. Yes. So did that, now looking back, make your life easier getting a dog that was, would you have preferred, you know, at that time, looking back, you know, having some hindsight, would you have preferred the way you had it, which is a dog that already kind of knew what to do, or would you have preferred getting something completely new and going at it from that? I mean, looking back at it now with the knowledge
1: that I have now, I would have preferred a green dog or mm-hmm. a, a newer dog that way, you know whatever old habits that dog may have had with the previous handler aren't aren't there,
0: yeah, so the um now that you've got into position of supervision within this, what do you prefer for new handlers that come into your program? Do you prefer that if again, this is if you had the option? yeah, uh, I know you have we'll talk about it coming up, but if you have the option, would you prefer them to getting a a fully trained with some experienced dog, or would you have like green and go for it there? Well, that's a good question. Um, I would have to say a green dog mm-hmm.
1: for the most part, and the reason yeah. being, uh, because again, there's there I I can guide and train that dog to according to how I like it. Right? Again, there's no mm-hmm. you know old habits or whatever it is that you kind of have to counter train.
0: Mm-hmm. What do um, you feel about? You have that green handler that knows nothing. Right. Timing's horrible. Right. They, they don't know which end to feed from most times, you know. Um, what do you – what have you gone through as a trainer when you have these handlers that come into the program? Because you, which, what I also need a preface that's unique about what you guys do is you guys take – Basically, anybody within the Venetian community and outside of it can apply for the canine position. So technically, somebody who's never even had a dog before could find themselves as a handler in your uh, program. Now, as we both know, there's pros and cons to that. Yes. But what would you say, you know, knowing those are the things that you deal with, would you still want the green on green or would you want experienced on green? I'm just curious as to how you see it because you're coming as a new supervisor. So uh-huh. I have, you know, I, I look at myself as jaded in certain things, but I'm just kind of curious from your point of view, how do you see it?
1: Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I think I would still go with it with a green dog. I mean, uh-huh. at the end of the day, th- those are some of the biggest issues that I'm, I'm facing is uh-huh. training the dog pretty much is easy. It's training the handler. That's where difficulty comes in and uh, like you mentioned you know from at the venetian they like to hire from within yeah. they like to pr- promote from within which i there's absolutely absolutely nothing wrong with that yeah you know i agree with that however at the same time we have dual purpose dogs right yes. and not everybody at the i mean to be honest not at, at at the end of the day no not everybody can be a dog handler Yeah. especially when it comes to dual purpose yep so I, I, it's, it's been really difficult trying to find you know the right handlers and then you know lately we've been trying to go uh, outside as well to mm-hmm. try to kind of expand our talent pool
0: mm-hmm. right but uh I would still probably go with, with, with green more of a green dog yeah you know? okay the now let's talk about the program that you're in how many dogs does Venetian have
1: uh we have
0: around a little over two dozen dogs okay yeah,
1: so between the two properties
0: yeah so you're right at like I said 25-ish you know right. we'll keep the number kind of loose and are all of them dual purpose no so when we when the program first expanded
1: half were dual purpose and half were single. However, you know, as time goes by, the, the single-purpose
0: dogs are being retired and they are all converting over to dual-purpose dogs. Oh, so you guys are kind of doing the opposite of what most do, right. which is they go to single-purpose. Yes. And where you're – I mean, I don't want to put you in an odd position because um, I know there's pros and cons to both. Right. Do you – would you still advocate for diversity in – the pool of dogs you have still oh, having some single purpose. And, absolutely. Okay. That's, that's actually a battle I'm trying to fight. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cause I know it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's Las Vegas, it you is. know, and you're dealing with, and I'll let you get into it, but the craziness.
1: Well, just the environmental factors. And then you have, again, dual purpose dogs around hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, you know, other animals, children, you know, it just, the, the environmental factor alone is just a huge headache. Yeah. Right. And then obviously the training that's involved, right? Because not only do we have to focus on detection, which is actually our bread and butter, a lot of our time actually has to be uh, focused on the patrol portion, right? Because that's a little bit more involved than than detection. Detection for me is pretty much straightforward, right? You tell the dog to search, he's searching Mm -hmm. for an odor. But when it comes to patrol, there's a lot of uh, uh, obedience that's involved. And then obviously neutrality to all of those different stimuluses that are happening uh, on the casino.
0: Yeah. So with that, to deal with having patrol dogs, um, what what would you say is the most difficult thing to deal with um, as somebody who has to manage patrol dog handlers? And you work a patrol dog. So what's been difficult as a patrol dog handler in that kind of environment?
1: Um, Just, I guess, having the knowledge and the time to properly train those dogs to be – Again, neutral to all the stimulus is about mm-hmm. at the same time effective. You know, I'm very new at this. You know, I'm, I'm not going to you know, sugarcoat it. I'm still learning uh, as I'm going. And, you know, uh, there's a lot that I've been learning. Uh, and I've actually adopted a lot of the training methodologies from the sports community. Mm-hmm. Right? Because <clears throat> compared to law enforcement canine versus ours, majority of the law enforcement canines are are in the back of their vehicles unless there's training or, the, or unless there's a call. hmm uh, however, for our handlers, they are constantly out in the public, you know, yeah. patrolling and you know, responding to calls. So there's a different level of training that is involved. Uh, again, having the dogs environmentally sound and neutral mm-hmm. to all those stimuluses. But at the same time, when they are needed, uh, they can, uh, they can uh, you know, turn on mm-hmm. uh, at the handler's
0: discretion. It's an extremely unique thing because, like you said, you know, in many aspects in canine, uh, the officer and handler are, have their vehicle, I would say, a vast majority. Yeah. Um. But in your world, you guys are walking the casino floors. You guys are walking on an average 10 to 12 miles a day inside yeah. the casino. Dogs are in and around the public in every form or fashion dealing with people who come in with their, quote unquote, service dogs yeah. and who get away from them and go attack your guys' dogs. These are the things you guys are dealing with. But then, like you said, the nightclub closes. It's time to wind down. It's 2 o'clock. You've got all your drunk patrons and guests and all these kind of things going on. And now it's time to come up. Security's got an issue. You guys now have to come up and turn the dog on. How difficult is it to manage the fact that the dog has to be docile and very calm 98% 98% of the time, and then there's that 2% of the time where all of a sudden it has to do what you want it to do, which is, and you can explain, what what, do they, what does the handler need to do in these circumstances when they say, okay, we want the dog here?
1: Well, our priority is obviously going to be more guest service related, right? Um, you know, I will tell my handlers, you know, just because you have a gun on your on your belt and you have a dual purpose dog does not mean you are some sort of, you know, military or law enforcement our priority is versus guest relationships and, you know, uh, guest, guest service, right? Mm-hmm. So when our handlers are responding to a call, um, usually, we, you know, I like to have the dogs quiet, you yeah. know, not barking in the background because if officers are trying to communicate through radio traffic, you can't really hear with a dog barking in the background. So again, going back to, you know, dog has to be very, very uh, neutral, as neutral as possible, whether the subject is is is, is quiet or just, you know, being uh, being, uh, uh not not violent. Just just right? argumentative. Just argumentative. And then you, obviously we, have, we deal with our guests who are drunk or whatever. And then now they start to get, you know, very, very loud. And even in those moments, we like to have the dog to be uh, to be quiet as, as much as possible, right?
0: So walk me through what – so when when it's time to turn it on, is it – do you guys just say watch them? And is it mostly – obviously I would say a deterrence aspect. Do you guys like cue the dogs up to bark? Do they just kind of do it on their own? What kind of happens in a situation that where you're, where now, you guys kind of realize we're probably going to have to go hands on with whoever we're dealing with at that moment. What do you guys typically do?
1: Yeah, usually the the, the, the handlers will have a watching command in order to turn the dog on, and the dog will obviously start to bark. Uh, that's going to be one of our levels. Uh, I mean, levels of use of force is presence, mm-hmm. and then the dog barking. Ninety percent of the time, that diffuses the situation. Right, you okay. have some. You know, 60, 70 pound male or German Shepherd barking at the end of the leash, that usually diffuses the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And then obviously, the handler again has the ability to tell the dog to, to, uh, we use a focus command where the dog just focuses on the subject. Okay. Right. Um, so we use a lot of again, neutrality, a lot of drive capping, uh, techniques. Okay. Right. Um, and then obviously, in the event the dog needs to be, um, used, then mm-hmm. the dog, the, the handler will have the command
0: to apprehend. And are all of your security guards armed? Not all of us yet. Okay. Yes. But it, so but a majority are. Yes, majority are. Okay. So with the situation, you guys have actually had bites with your dogs, correct? Yes, in the past we've yeah. had some. So um so these dogs, again, which is I think sometimes hard for people to uh understand or I would say once they understand, but appreciate is how basically docile and normal. These dogs have to be all the time because a vast majority, like you said, is guest relations, right? You guys are walking information booth basically. So people come walking up. Where's this place? Where is that? How do I get there? Oh, can I pet your dog? Then add now I'm drunk and I really want to pet your dog. Um, and all the do not pet patches you slap on your dog. Don't mean anything to many of the people. It just means pet me more. In fact, if you put, like, please pet me, they probably – half of them probably wouldn't want to pet. But the minute you say, no, don't pet the dog, now they want to pet the dog. Right. So the um, they have to deal with that. And then, like we talked about, those rare circumstances all of a sudden be this tool, like you said, a use of force tool to hopefully just by the presence only deescalate, but then put mouth on somebody if they have to. So, I mean, like you said, I, I can appreciate – And I hope the, those that are watching and listening understand, like you said, that's a lot of training, That's a lot of below the surface stuff that you have to do, um, to maintain that. What would you say is the hardest out of all of those things as you're getting these dogs to do those things? What is, where do you put most of your time on the patrol side in dealing with, or making sure that this works? Uh, we put a lot of you know,
1: obedience, and then what I like to call decoy neutrality, okay, or subject neutrality. Um, actually, lately I've been learning this new concept through a trainer named Armin Winkler. Mm-hmm. He talks about you know drive capping, yep. and that kind of just blew my mind because you know there's a drive capping that, but that I knew before, but it wasn't truly drive capping. Uh-huh. Right? Just, right? So it, you just you're just managing. <laughs> I was just managing. It's, it's, it's like having it's just basic obedience, like telling the dog do a long stay. Yeah. Right. But, you know, and, and what he explains in true draft capping is a dog's ability to um, uh, keep their impulses inside Correct. while at the same time maintaining or increasing drive and not decreasing. Mm-hmm. Right. So before, you know, again, depending on the style of training that you do, you know, from from where we come from, we're more a little bit traditional. So there, there is a little bit more pressure and, and, and uh, based training. And we're trying to get away from that to try to be a little bit more mm-hmm. on the positive side. Mm-hmm. Right. But. You know, before, you know, when we did our training, it would be a lot of corrections, right? So if the dog, you know, wanted to go after the toy or after the decoy, there would be a lot of corrections that are involved. Mm-hmm. And now the dog's, you know, drive intensity is, is decreasing. Yeah. Right? So now you start to see all those little avoidance behaviors where the dog's are shuffling around, or the dog's looking back, where, the, you know, the dog doesn't want to focus on a decoy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. But now, obviously, through what I've learned recently, you know, my training has shifted a lot. And uh, it's actually working out. Mm-hmm. I was actually, you know afraid that it wasn't going to work because at the end of the day, the dog validates your training. Correct. Me being the new trainer that I am, you know, not having a lot of knowledge. Well, you got to prove yourself constantly. Exactly. I have to constantly prove myself. You know, that's always in the back of my mind. Like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Are are these dogs going to perform? And so far it seems to be working, right? Well, the dogs are just now completely focused on whether it's the reward on the the ball on the floor or a a decoy in 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 a bite
0: suit, right? So, you know, it's... As I say, knowing Armin, like I do... The key thing that I'm sure, and you can tell me if it's different, but the fact that he gave you a layered approach said first, do it with this, something yes. lower level, yeah, get it get it good at that Now, let's raise up the bar a little bit. Can it do it for you know, let's just say start a food toy, yeah. a a more even value toy to maybe a bite sleeve, and then working your way all the way up to you know, like you said full end versus I would say what many try to do, probably including yourself, was you were trying to do those things with the highest value thing in front of them. Yes. And all you could constantly do was manage. And you were trying to stifle all of that focus and drive and motivation for that, uh, in this case, the bite, um, which caused conflict, mm-hmm. which caused uh, suspicious behaviors. Um, so... It's kind of cool to hear, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, I had 27 years of doing bite stuff before I really became heavily in detection only. Um, but it's nice to see that those important lessons, such as how to, it's like an onion. It's got the layers to it. You just got to work your way through and you can't just try to do it from, the end state where you have a decoy and then you're trying to manage all, it's, it's so much going on. I'm right. sure as you kind of hinted at that, there's a lot to deal with, right? Yeah. So then add that new handler who can't anticipate or read the behaviors in the dog, like what that ear twitch means with right. that, the dog to the muscles are starting to tense and they miss all that stuff. So then all of a sudden all they're doing is they're reacting to the dog barking now or mm-hmm. doing something or jumping forward. Uh, but starting off in a much more calm way helps the do- or helps that handler read those little precursor behaviors before I joke around. I call it, you got to handle it when it's a spark, not a fire. And yep. most times they're it dealing put- with it when it's in a fire state, yeah. you know, they're, they're They, they miss the spark part of it. Um, and that carries over to detection, which we'll kind of get into as well. But So the patrol part, what would you say out of your patrol and detection, um, when it comes to training, how do you split the time? How much time is devoted to one or the other?
1: Well, since I'm the only one, uh, I kind of just, you know, look at each handler, each dog individually. And then I kind of just formulate my plan from there. Mm -hmm. You know, fortunately, I have the ability to be very flexible with my schedule. So I kind of make my own schedule. Again, you know, if there are certain dogs or teams on this shift that need a little bit more help, then then I'll dedicate a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only that, though, but I also have, you know, three leads that assist me with the training. So without them, it would be impossible. Yeah,
0: for sure. What advice would you give to somebody, you know, who wants to get into – I mean, Vegas, I'll say this, you know, Vegas is unique in the fact that canine for civilians – is far more easy to accomplish. I wanna say easy, easy isn't the right word, but more available to accomplish. Yeah. Because just on the strip, there's what, almost 100 dog teams yeah, between the different casinos? Property has a, has yeah, has a dog team now, yeah. You know, MGM's 20-something, you guys are 20-plus something, other ones are in the 10-ish ranges and so forth, so, and you've got multiple of those, and then you've got convention center and so on and so forth, so it's a lot of dogs, which means there's opportunities but I also uh, I'll let everybody know not everybody takes care of handlers as well as Venetian does when it comes to compensation and benefits and things like that. But what would you what advice would you give somebody who's like, oh my gosh, I listen to the podcast. I, I want to become a, a canine handler in Las Vegas. What's your advice? Just keep your eye on the prize and just keep going. Don't you know, don't give up. How, how do you get into it? You just look for the job applications online? I would
1: probably, if you're going to get into K9 uh, specifically, um, unless usually, from, at least from my experience, uh, the properties will rarely hire directly from the outside and going straight into K9. Yeah. So you usually have to start out somewhere, and that's usually security. So, you know, just like anything else, you're going to have to put in your time, uh, you, know, you know, keep your nose clean, do your job, mm-hmm. uh, get to know the K9 unit, get to know the handlers, get to know the supervisors, you know, just kind of, you know, just network. You know, put your put your face up there, and you know, and volunteer. Hey, can I volunteer for training? You know, if they have mm-hmm. bite dogs, you know, hey, okay, can I volunteer to get in the suit? Mm-hmm. You know, all those little things that you can help to kind of put yourself on the radar. You know, but you're know, you're more than likely going to have to start you know somewhere uh, on the bottom and then kind of just work your way up. But yep. it's it's definitely worth it if you truly want to be a canine handler.
0: I mean, I can't just fly out here, get an apartment, and go. Can I get a job as a canine handler? You know, so send an application. <laughs> Uh, Probably that's not not
1: that easy, yeah. It's not that easy.
0: Oh man, there's gonna be some hearts broken when they hear that one, but um, yeah, it's like you said, the important part is it's like anything else, you got to put in the work, right? You got to put in the time, and you've got to, um, you know, these programs are like I said, here on the strip are fairly large ish, especially when you compare them to a law enforcement agency. These places have, um, like I said. 10 ish dogs as an average. There's a lot of people that want to be a dog handler, um, many times. And for a lot of these places, liability is a big concern for them. So they mm-hmm. want to know that you least have a good head on your shoulders. And I would say I, I can there's only one or two I can think of, but most of these places, dogs go home with handlers. Yes. So you also have to take care of this, you know, I don't want to use the word tool, but that's what they will call it right. um, property item that belongs to the casino and it goes home with you and you you drive it in your car. You don't get a fancy police car. Right. You you drive it back and forth in your own car. Um, you take care of it. You're compensated for these things. But there's a, there's a lot beyond the sexiness of walking around wearing a uniform and, you know, having a cool dog by your side. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of people see on the surface. Of course.
1: Oh, you got a cool dog, you know, you're, you know, you get the compensation, you get the kind of the, you know, oh, you're in a specialty unit, you know, yep. and, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background, <clears throat> excuse me, that people don't you know, really know, especially when it comes to the training, taking your dog home and having to deal with the dog, you know, having an accident on your carpet, you know, and your significant other finds out, you know, it's, it's, it can be a pain.
0: Oh yeah. There's a lot of responsibility that so, yeah. comes with it. I joke around, I tell a lot of new handlers, congratulations, you have a three-year-old child now. Exactly. <laughs> so you're, you're taking care right. of that. Let's turn the page to detection. So, on the detection side, what is it like to be a handler working in Las Vegas?
1: Uh, that's. I think it's equally uh, uh, as difficult, right? Because again, that's our bread and butter, butter. and um, a lot of the times, some of the issues that we go through are just, again having enough time to split between patrol. Uh, and detection because there's so many odors that, you know, we try to, we try to train our dogs on Mm -hmm. and obviously there's some odors that we want to particularly focus on in our area of operations, right? Mm -hmm. So we try to focus more on the low explosives, the powders Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the homemade explosives. We still train on the military stuff, but the likelihood of us uh, running into that, uh, is, is less likely. So Mm -hmm. again, we have to kind of try again, uh, Divide all of our, our time appropriately. You, you
0: got to put your attention to the, your threat, like right. you're saying,
1: and pipe bombs and pressure yeah. cookers. You know all the things that happened hap, hap, that have happened here. You know the Boston Marathon bombing. You know all those little packages, luggages. Mm-hmm. I mean every every day we have hundreds of hundreds of guests coming in with our luggage. Yeah, right. So that poses you know a potential security threat. Yeah. So.
0: Now. Do you guys have to search every piece of luggage that comes in? Or is it like, you know, do you guys have like a randomized thing? Because like you said, to the average person, they just see you guys walking around. right? Um, And you guys have at any point in time, a number of different dogs working on one shift. Um, I mean, I know the answer to this, but, you know, how is the average dog handler's day split up? Is there somebody who's like got... I'll joke around like the military side. When I first got in the military as a dog handler, we were stuck in the ammo dump as a canine handler, and all I said, all I did was sit there and look at these multiple hills in the ground and just right. do nothing. Then over time, got to where I got to do the more cool, fun stuff in the in this world that you guys do. How how is a day in the life of a bomb patrol dog handler for where you guys work? Uh, well, we try to be
1: proactive and do our patrols, and then we obviously have certain parts of the of the property where we focus our attention on, depending on what's going on. So for example, a couple of weeks ago we had the shot show here. So we yep. always have conventions going on. So we'll have canine officers kind of patrol, you know, those areas. Uh, we tried to patrol the front desk areas where guests are checking in and checking out because again, they're coming in with the luggages. So, you know, we're almost like at the airport where we hit the dogs just mm-hmm. kind of just do kind of doing a free sniff, right. Just going in yep. and out. Right. Um, and again, wherever there's any hot spots, we try to focus uh, our manpower there, and just overall, just have a, just to be a visual deterrent, mm-hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, if I'm a bad guy and I, you know I come to this property and I see, let's say, three dog teams, and then the one across the street doesn't have any dog teams, yeah, I'm probably going to go to the one, yeah, that doesn't have any dog teams.
0: It's hit the soft target, not the hard exactly. target. Yeah. What um, what is the hardest thing, you know, doing this job? um as the handler like what's the hardest things that you constantly are going through working the job as a handler in this environment
1: um avoiding complacency right because a lot of the handlers have may have this mentality oh nothing's going to happen and i will say um it's not if it's Mm -hmm. just a matter of when Mm -hmm. and we don't want to be caught you know uh with our pants down pretty much right because it just takes that one time yeah right you know for example 9-11 nobody would have thought that
0: or or 10-1 for you guys out here October
1: 1st nobody would have thought some crazy guy would start shooting down you know on people so it just takes that one time so I'm always constantly reminding them don't be complacent don't be complacent you know take your job seriously take the training seriously because at the end of the day I don't want anything to happen to you guys and even for the other properties well you know what just because something doesn't happen on our property doesn't mean it's going to affect us, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, we are all one community exactly. on, the, on the Las Vegas Strip. Yeah. So when something happens, you know, down you know down Las Vegas Boulevard, it's going to affect
0: everybody else. Correct. So. No, no, and it's really easy to get complacent Absolutely. in the environment you work in because the job entails every day walking right. the entire resort. You know, in these different, I mean, like it, 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 people don't have an appreciation for it, but it's miles of of distance that you cover floor after floor, you know, the gaming floors, the right. convention floors, the hotel, you know, different, uh, the lobby areas, the luggage areas, there's so much involved, but after a while, even for the dog, it's like, yep, hook my harness up. We're gonna go for a walk, yep. do our thing. And, you know, it's day after day, it's groundhog day, you know, and you try to, like you said, you come up with things to keep everybody sharp, but it only takes that one that that october 1st were you were you working as a were you already in vegas at the time when that happened yeah so funny story about yeah. october 1st is uh, my wife and i we did one of those helicopter
1: tours and we actually flew over the festival 45 minutes prior to the shooting so cuz we we got home then my mother-in-law called and she was like hey man turn
0: on the tv and then, you know i turned on the tv i'm like holy crap we just flew over that wow you know I mean? so so that that was so were you yeah, did you did you have a dog at that time or no, you? No, I did not. Okay, so yeah. you were this is when you're either at the win of security? Yeah, I don't remember. But I,
1: no, I think I was yeah, I was working with Win K9 at the time. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, did you get called in? Do you guys like whatever what happened
1: even No, but like, I mean, not nothing really happened as far as I getting called in, but a lot yeah. of our uh security protocols changed. Yeah. Right? And it's actually after that, that that event October 1st where uh the Venetian decided to up their hiring. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Right. I think at the time that half a dozen dogs. Correct. Right. And then they yep. expanded their unit. That's when I actually applied.
0: Yep. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember the friend that I have that was here, uh, Lauren Maracus, the one I used to work for at Silver State, she was the ATF ATF handler here at that time. Right. So yeah, that was a game changer for, like you said, that happened at Mandalay Bay, but yeah. the ripple effect still goes on today. Because now casinos have their own emergency response teams, they which had never dogs. had before. Yep, yep they up dogs. the number of dogs. Yep. Um, the use of firearms detection dogs now has grown. I've seen, I've seen it kind of go up and down, and I've seen it now. It's back on a. It's going back up again. Um, it's what would you say is a bigger threat? Based on your experience, the explosive aspect or the firearm aspect? Considering what's happened out here,
1: I would probably say both. Okay, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say one is less than the other because mm-hmm. again, I'm always trying yeah. to be on my toes. Yeah, right. More likely, it's going to be firearms. Yes, yeah. you know, more easily, uh, you know, accessible. Yeah, yeah. right. For explosives takes a little bit more thought process behind it, but again, it's happened here in you know, stateside. And, you know, I just, I don't want it to be here. You mm-hmm. know,
0: so, so with. Training and doing all that you have to do. Again, you're in an environment um, where training isn't easily done, at least not in the areas where you're expected to find things. Exactly. Um, how much of that is a hurdle to deal with, knowing that there are a number of hurdles or limitations in place to do what somebody like I know you would want to set up um to keep dog sharp and keep handler sharp, how do you manage and work around those kinds of things to keep dogs ready?
1: Uh, that's an everyday thing that I fight. you know I, I try to do a lot of reality based training again to keep the dogs you know uh, sharp and the handler sharp and to you know uh, avoid from them being complacent. I'm always having to come up with some sort of training that kind of stimulates you know their brain. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like you said, we can't train as much as on the casino floor as I'd like. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I can't do any bite work on the casino floor. Sure. Right, so all of that stuff has to be done, you know, behind the scenes. But contextually, the dog knows, okay, you know, we're 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 in some you know warehouse in the back. We're not on the casino floor, right? So you know, my my worry is always like, okay, is the dog going to uh, perform the same as he does, you know, in his mm-hmm. you know, training environment? So you know, I always have to you know ask the different department heads for permission. Hey, can I train here? Hey, can I train here? And then I have to make sure the dogs aren't you know making a mess and the handlers aren't making a mess, right? Because it's happened in the past and it happens, you know, when you have, you know, over two dozen dogs, something is about, you know, bound to happen and we lose training areas, right? Because, Oh, you know, this dog did this, we don't want you here anymore. Right.
0: So, you know, it's, it's an ongoing battle. Sure. So. But you, you, you reach out and you make connections and connections friends. Connections and relations. Yes. You know, that's,
1: that's another part that's you know, tough for me. You know, I'm naturally more of an introvert. Mm-hmm. Right. So, me getting out of my shell and, you know,
0: being a little bit more social and, you know, making those relationships, you know, definitely yeah. uh, has taught me a lot of things too. So, and it gives you opportunities now that you'd never had, or um, maybe in this case for your handlers and dogs right. to to do things that they wouldn't normally go do had you stayed with the status quo mentality. Right. Which was like, well, we're always trained in these spots that we have. Yeah. No, you, I'm, I'm always trying to push the envelope. I'm always trying to.
1: Uh, keep the standard as high as possible I have very high standards you know, mm-hmm. for myself so naturally I will have high standards for, you know for the unit and I'm always trying to you know up the training you know and you know uh, training with other units mm-hmm. right, across the strip training we, we've trained with you know highway patrol we've trained with you know some law enforcement agencies we train with the local uh, Nellis Air Force Base they have a canine mm-hmm. unit there we've trained with their EOD units. So you know I'm, I'm always trying to develop those relationships so you know we can train outside of our normal. Yeah, day to day basis. So,
0: the and a big thing that you bring up there as a trainer is now you by training with these other agencies, entities, etc. You also are exposing your dogs to their training exactly. kits. Right. And the biggest thing I always try to get newer trainers to understand is don't stay in that little bubble in your little yep. area. You know, it, you know, there's all these places. Ha- you know, canine is very tribal anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and thanks to things like social media, we've become probably more so. Um, but it doesn't do you any good or do the dogs any good if we stay in our little bubble. We exactly. have to get out. Um, you have to, you know, expose these dogs to all of the different ways that odor could be presented to them and how you guys utilize your training aids to store them and put them out is different than even somebody else on the strip. Exactly. Let alone like you said training with a military unit, training with another law enforcement agency. Those are huge things. Getting out networking um and learning stuff and putting these dogs through these different experiences is a important factor to stay on point. Right. It's easy to be lazy, right? Yeah, it is. So, you know, if it's worth doing something, that's one of the things I've I've watched you do is do that. But as a trainer, let's dig a little bit deeper. What's been the biggest, I guess I'll go with this first. What is one of the biggest takeaways you've had in the past couple of years when you took the job as a trainer, you you, you had the responsibility. Now you have to produce. What has been your learning curve? What has been like, oh man, I'm definitely, I know you did the patrol stuff, but well, we'll keep this detection then. Um, what's been the biggest things that you went, okay, I, I, I've definitely had to learn a lot about this.
1: Uh, I've definitely learned a lot about detection. I mean, what I thought I knew before was was nothing. Cause uh, you know, I I learned a lot from, from trainers like you, right. Because you're always trying to push the envelope, trying to research. Right. So that's what I'm constantly doing, you know, as well, you know, trying to be more educated on what the scientific community is, you know, putting out, you know, you got, you know, Dr. Hall, Dr. Tiedemann, Dr. Michelle Mon, Dr. DeGrief, all those people. Yeah. Right. So it's, I'm always trying to do my own research on the side, you know, whether I'm at home or whatever it is, listening to podcasts when I'm driving to work, right, just trying to stay up to date with, you know, the latest things that are going on in detection because, uh, like you said, we're in a renaissance period when it comes to detection, right, so um, just, you know, basically just trying to be, you know, up to date, making sure the dogs, you know, can find the odor that they're supposed to find, uh, and then you know helping them generalize on mm-hmm. whatever odors that they need to find, you know, doing the distractors, doing the proofers, you know, and just making the dog uh
0: a good a good sensor, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And, and finding those things.
0: Is there anything in particular that you went, yeah, I have to change and do this?
1: Um probably the way we utilize our odors and store them. Okay because right, in the past, you know, we didn't use mylar bags, we didn't use gloves, we didn't do any of that. We didn't think about cross contamination, right? And you know, it actually worked out because naturally, I'm I'm very OCD, right? So once I learned about you know how to store the kits, and, you know how to put them out, you know, and all those things, mm-hmm. how to utilize distractors, you know, versus proofing odors, right? And uh, you know that kind of really changed the game for me, right? Because now. Because for us, purchasing odors is very, very difficult. Right? Sure, because they cost a lot of money, right? So it's it's that's another battle that I have to you know come yeah. up with every year. It's or It's amazing
0: so, though how you know something, a casino, loads of money, right? That's right. the way we would always look at it. Doesn't want to invest a whole lot in the dog stuff. They're just like, eh, yeah, you know, just walk around, look pretty. That's what you know, exactly. even though they really want you to be on point, um, you would really hope and wish that they would invest the way they should based on how critical that dog and handler are to the overall safety of all of those guests who are putting in all that money to the casino. They would maybe take the percentage and move it up a little bit higher and invest in the program.
1: Well, unfortunately, generally for a security department on Mm -hmm. on on the hotel strip, Yep. Uh they see us as not profit generating. Correct.
0: Yeah. Right. They, they don't look at it as the it's the safe our job is right. to ensure the safety of these right. people. Right. They look at it as our job is to get the money out of these people. Exactly. <laughs> we'll we'll keep them safe enough. But and, and obviously the kind of point I'm making isn't unique to you guys. And and that's the part I want the listeners to take away is, you know, they would expect a twenty-five officer agency to not have a lot of funds to Invest in their canine program. But a billion dollar casino industry goes, eh, I really don't want you to have real training aids. I really don't want you to, to we got we gotta put time into this. Well we gotta buy this? Why? Yeah. You know, and you would think that wouldn't be the case, but it's it's the reality. And that's you know, right, wrong, indifferent doesn't matter. But it isn't, the grass isn't greener because you guys are a billion dollar casino that you have the same things that those canine handlers go through that are in Podunk, Mississippi that have five people in their agency, same issues. And I think that's what um, people may not see sometimes. And even the bigger agencies I've worked with from LAPD to NYPD and things like that, you guys are all in the same boat. You know, that's the toughest thing is seeing you know, I'm preaching to a choir because the audience that we have are all dog people, Right. so they're all like, "Hell yeah!" You know, damn right. But it's the it's the people who aren't listening to podcasts like this and seeing stuff that really should be hearing the message of invest. If you if you're going to go forward and say we're going to keep the public and my guests at this resort safe, I've invested everything I possibly could and should to make that a reality. And there's no perfect. Yeah. I get that. But it's sure it could be a hell of a lot better than where it's at. But with that said, bring this to another point. You've done a lot all by yourself. I mean, talk about just – I know you don't like to put light on what you do. You're humble in that way. But you've taken your program. You guys now have a training area that you didn't have before. Yes you have training equipment that you guys never had before stuff that you guys have built. You guys went out on your own and, uh, procured like spare wood to help make things. T- right. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you, you went over the hurdle of no or little investment and still, you know, turn lemons into lemonade.
1: Um, well, again, you know, my, my passion is, is driving me. I'm always trying to make the unit better. You know, my goal is to make our unit one of the best canine units on the strip. Right. So, one of my uh, previous goals was I want a training area, right? Because for us, finding a training area is difficult. We'll find a new oh, train. We're course. like we're like almost like homeless people. Yeah, you know, just just you taking the, any, up- exactly like, hey, any opportunity. Hey, spot right here, let's use it. We'll use that spot, for you know, for a couple, weeks, couple months, and then we get kicked out. We move <laughs> to another spot, you know, we get kicked out. So I was like, man, I want you know kind of my own training area, right? So um, I actually kind of forced uh, my executive's hand on this. I was like, I'm just going to build it and then ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. Right. So myself, some handlers, and the three of my leads, we invested some of our own money and time, in order to build some of those things. You know, and, and uh, you know, we built our own obedience course. So what we did was, you know, there was a lot of wood that was being thrown away on the property. So again, we were like homeless people. Yeah. Just you know, p- picking wood. We, we were literally dumpster diving for yeah. we you know, wooden pallets and those things. So, you know, we, again, we use those wood that we use that wood to build, you know, all the equipment that we have, you know, we've had some equipment donated, you know, you donated, donated some of the stuff to us and some other people donated some different things to us. So, you know, that we're super thankful for that, mm-hmm. um, you know, but just again, you know, I know the budget, budget thing was an issue and then we're a very, very expensive unit. So I was like, I'm not going to let that stop me. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to continue trying to do what I can, you know, where I have control over. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I can sit there and complain, you know, oh, you know, you're not spending money, you're not spending That's money. That's the easy thing. Exactly. I can I can complain all day or I can, I can actually do something about it, right? So I just decided, you know, myself and, you know, my leads, we'll, we'll just do something about it and we'll build our own training room.
0: Yeah. So. It, and it's it, And it's paid off. I mean, I've watched others on the strip kind of do similar things to what right. you guys did. I can definitely say you guys were probably the first that really got it to the point where it's at and others very closely behind, um, have created very similar things. Um, so when it comes to, you know, you kind of address some of the training things you you try to do things. Um, how do you balance out reality based training, keeping dogs ready for doing the job they do with the fundamentals that you have to do to keep these dogs with a good, like the ABCs, one, two, threes aspect of let's say detection. Um, would you how do you balance that out as a trainer? Are you doing it in, I'm sure you probably are, but individual, or do you guys kind of have a schedule like, hey, we're gonna do basics this time and then we're gonna do, let's say, more scenario-based or evaluation based a different time?
1: Um again, it t- primarily depends on the the dog teams. We're right now I'm actually, you know, doing the whole unit, we're just going through the basics on conditioning of new odors, uh teaching a marker, marker mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Um and kind of just going going down that route, and then once all the basics are done, because if the dog doesn't know the basics and the handler don't know the basics, there's no point in doing scenario based training, right? So yeah, um, I'm kind of just catching up to everything. You know, I've been in my position now for a little over two years. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's a lot of stuff that's involved that doesn't involve training. So when I actually came into the position, I didn't realize there was a lot of admin work, right? For example, our standing operating procedures, we barely had any, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm actually responsible for creating some of those operating procedures, tr- uh, creating the training plans. So I'm um, a lot of the time. Actually, right now I'm stuck in my computer most of the time, and I'm, I'm not actually doing the things that I want to do, which is you know to train the dogs. So you know, actually starting this week and, and going forward, I'm actually uh, implementing those the training plans that I have you know uh, for the unit, and it starts at the basics first.
0: Yep. And then, how much do you spend educating handlers? We talked a lot about dogs. A lot of people focus on dogs. Yeah. Talk about the handler side of that leash. Uh, again. It's training a handler, that's the
1: difficult part for the most part, right? So I, I do, from whatever I, I learn through podcasts, through what, what I read in books, you know, I kind of make PowerPoints, uh, you know, for example, you know, on on uh, odors or canine cognition, mm-hmm. right? Canine cognition is, is actually part of, a huge part of our program that I just recently adopted through what I learned through you. And that actually, you know, it's, it's nice to see, you know, what the dog is thinking because that kind of tells you, okay, I can train this way or I can train this way versus kind of just, you know, let Jesus it. take the wheel and, you know, just we'll see just how it goes, right? Um, so, you know, I've gone through a majority of the classes and teaching the handlers the science, teaching, you know, classical conditioning, operant conditioning. You'll be surprised how many handlers don't know the difference between that those Correct. two. Or, you know, what it actually means, right? So again, you know, we, we the handlers are good at the hands-on things, you know, on how to search, how to do leash control, but they don't know the science behind it, right? And mm-hmm. uh, until the handlers understand the science behind it, they won't truly be, you know, successful you mm-hmm. know, at being a dog handler. So that's a very,
0: very important part that I think a lot of people, a lot of trainers, a lot of programs kind of just overlook. So no, you have to invest in the human side of education. Exactly. So let me bring it in. this. So you brought in the science aspect, like you know, you're educating them so they have a knowledge base. How much do you also have to put into that mechanics, timing, um, reading of their dogs? How how do you or what's been the biggest challenge when it comes to those skills? Like you said, there's leash stuff, but there's the critical aspect is handlers reading their dogs. Exactly.
1: I mean that just comes down to the handler, and again, not every handler, every handler is going to be their own expert, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of handlers may not have what I call canine intuition, right? To kind of see those things be be able to predict those things, and you know, I always talk about there's windows of opportunity that will show up, you know, in a quick second. And if you don't take that window of opportunity, particularly when you're maybe free-shaping a behavior, then then you've lost out, you know, out on that. And so a lot of the times, I'm having to do the hey, did you see that? Hey, did you see that? Or I'm recording on the video, mm. right, and then replaying it and saying this is what I was talking about, right? Because a lot of the times, unfortunately, you know, it's a lot of the handler's personalities will kind of get in the way, right? So that's just another challenge for me as a trainer is being able to articulate and being able to communicate you know, certain training methodologies, whatever. And a lot of times it'll handle like, well, you know, this, this, this happened. It's because of this, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, they'll try to find excuses of Deplace, why their dog is not performing. Kurt, they'll blame it on the odor or they're blaming it on the decoy or they're blaming it on the dog. So, you know, I have to find ways, you know, to, to communicate
0: without, mm-hmm. you know, causing any conflict. Give people an example. What have you done? What's been something you found effective?
1: Um, being empathetic and just being patient. You know, just in general, you know, you have to be patient, whether you're a dog handler or a tra- I mean, every dog every dog handler is going to be a trainer first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. They just they may not be, you know, officially a trainer, but you know, you just have to be patient and allowing the dog kind of sometimes be a dog because a lot of times, particularly when you come from more of a traditional style, you are pressuring or you are telling the dog what to do, right? Versus just mm-hmm. again, if you're trying to do more free shaping, more positive uh, training. Allowing the dog to show you those behaviors and then marking the behaviors that you want, mm-hmm. versus you know trying to you know for example utilize negative reinforcement mm-hmm.
0: to do a, to do a behavior right. So what's been helpful for dealing with people?
1: Um, getting to know the personalities, right? Um, you know, some people you can be more direct with, some you can't. So I adjust my you know my 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 approach according mm-hmm. to the individual. Some handlers are going to be more hands-on based. Some are more visual. So again, I try to. It's it's like you know, you have to train every dog that's in front of you, right? I can't train all the dogs the same way, correct? Right. So I kind of approach the same mentality when I when it comes to training the handler. I train the handler that's in front of me. So
0: that's huge because you know, again, like you talked about. there was the day and age where you just yelled at people and, exactly. you know, made them train on a bucket or do other stuff. Right. And, and um, you know, I came from that generation um, and, and there's good tools that still exist from those days. But like you said, being flexible as that instructor, because there's a trainer right. and there's an instructor. Exactly. And as an instructor, you have to be really flexible, um, just like you are as a trainer and you have to. It's hard. It's hard sometimes, especially in the moment. You know, right. I, I I will relate. You know, probably my thing is the patience aspect. You know, I can be patient with a dog. I sometimes have less patience on the human side of things. Um, that's probably that's one of my faults. Um, but I'll. It, it's again, you. My message isn't received if I've turned them off. Right. So, being able to have them be receptive to the information that you give them. And knowing you, I know you're a patient person. Um, that's one of the things I think that I've seen from a side is you're, you're willing to, like, you're firm. You have, like, okay, we're only going to go so far with this. You either have to do this or don't at certain points. But you also take a time to understand and be patient about how they got there. And well, the funny thing is, I never used to be patient, actually. Okay. Um, and that's one thing of going
1: into, into the dog world as a handler or a trainer has taught me, you know, you know, it, it being a dog handler makes you a better person overall, right? So, for example, patience. I I used to have a short fuse. I didn't have patience. If, if you would have known me 15 years ago, you'd have been like, now you're <laughs> like, oh, like what? You know what, what's, what's going on, right? So, I mean, it's definitely helped me to become a better person, right? Be a better communicator, be more patient, or be more you know agreeable. Uh-huh. Right. It's helped me in my personal relationships. Right. I'm sure my wife you know, yeah. appreciates my patience, and my daughter. I'm sure she appreciates yeah. the patient. My dog appreciates it. Right. So, what, what,
0: what flipped the trigger
1: for you? What made you switch? Was it getting into dogs or right, what? Exactly. It's getting into dogs and just wanting to be the best that I can be. Okay. Right. And just, you know, I, 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 I realized that I can't keep doing things that I, the, the way I was doing, which was more pressure based and just, you know, Oh, I'm the alpha. You're the dog. You're, you're going to do what I say. Right. And that, you know, when I got my my when I when I when I got to the Venetian, when I got my dog Odin, he actually taught me a lot because mm-hmm. he's a softer dog. Mm-hmm. You put a little bit of pressure on him, and he just kind of turns off. Yeah, and they were actually going to take him away from me because the prior dog that I had, he was again was a ninety five pound male. Yeah, you could throw him, you could kick him, you could wrestle him, and he'll just come back. You know, just you know, just just happy. You know, and go lucky. So, you know, at the time I have very limited knowledge. That's what I knew. You don't do what I say, I'm going to make you mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So again. When you know when, when I was at the school, they were gonna you know take the dog away from me, and you know to me that was a failure. Even though I wasn't gonna get kicked out of the school, the fact that you were gonna take that dog away from me and give me another dog, I saw myself as a failure. for, for some reason that night, I still remember that night because it was in Indiana and it's cold. It was in the winter. I had my windows open. I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and for some reason I had like, had an epiphany. And then you know I, I came into the training next day. You know I, I just changed my mentality. I was a lot more patient, and then the dog started responding to me, and I was like, okay. Yeah. You know, things things you know things are working, and from there on out, I just continue to evolve, evolve to be you know it's a better better Handler and a better trainer. So
0: yeah, no, it is. I mean, you you've gone through uh, the school at the biggest you know at Vaughn Lake, which is a, I would say the, I still think it's the biggest um, vendor, Kennel in the United States. I don't I know a lot of those are close, but I I still think they're the biggest. But going through from a system. And procedures and all those things that are in place at a large facility like that, gaining that knowledge and having a moment like that, you know, shows, you know, your growth. And one of the core things I know uh, I've heard Kenny bring up various times in lectures is the keep evolving. Yes. And um, I'll steal one of his lines the best thing a dog trainer can do is steal information from another dog trainer. Every dog trainer out there is a damn thief if they're a good dog trainer kind of thing. That's exactly what I did. Yep. Yep. And you, and you still apply those lessons, obviously Uh, which brings us to, you know, you're, when I got out here, uh, you guys using a marker based system for communication of reward was um, in its really infancy stage. Um, Now, I think it's a pretty predominant aspect, not just with you guys, but throughout the strip yes. from what I've seen. Um, talk a little bit about the journey of going through like learning a marker system and um, what you saw from going from not using one before to where you're at now.
1: Oh, I mean, overall I think the marker system is great. You know, once I learned it, I was like, holy crap, you know, why didn't I, you know, know this before mm-hmm. again, that was just part of my journey of, of trying to learn you know, as much as I could. Um, and I actually wasn't the one who implemented the market system. That was a, that was my predecessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, implemented the market system prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now I'm just taking it, you know, full scale uh, and putting out putting it out throughout the whole unit because I, it's, it's just more. It's, it's a more effective way of communicating, particularly when it comes to obedience or uh, you know, paying you know on target odor. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: So. What have you seen as the biggest um, advantage uh, that you've dealt with? As a trainer, using the marker for handlers, like you know, um, because you know, a lot of times handlers when they're first learning are trying to manage a bunch of things. Yes. Um, how has this been beneficial for what you guys did? Because it's not an easy thing. I mean, marker systems themselves are not complicated, but there's things involved. Talk about that, like how that how you seen that and what the pros and cons were.
1: Um, well, there, there was cons in teaching Mm -hmm. it actually to the handlers because there's multiple, I guess, motor skills that are involved. Again, it's timing of the dog, right? Whether you're using a verbal marker or some sort of mechanical marker, right? Just, and and just getting the timing, right? right? Mm -hmm. A lot Mm -hmm. of the problems or issues that I see is, is just the timing.
0: Yeah. Right. So that's for sure the biggest thing. And, and, and it's the biggest, like you said, it's the con or the argument for those that use what we'll call direct or pay at source or et yeah. um, And that has its cons too. You right. know, there is no, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say in, you know, as you know, that's how we met each other initially was, you know, I, I came to the area and was, you know, I've been doing marker training since like 2012 or whatever, no 11 when I was back in Texas. And um, it was definitely not something that was widely accepted and when I would have these good conversations with trainers, we discussed discuss some of these pros and cons, and, and I became a big voice for the marker system. And now I spend more than half my time telling people it's a balance. You know, yeah. there's times that you need to be able to do direct, and there's also very valuable aspects to the marker indirect side of things. Um, you need to be well-versed in both. You should be able to do both. The dogs value both. Um, and I try to bring it back to obedience when I get people to understand when you teach obedience and we're teaching a down stay and you walk out the 10 feet, 20 feet, whatever it is you're walking out to, do you always call the dog to you? And everybody's like, well, no, you know, because after, of course, only a few times, the dog's going to anticipate calling it, right? So – you you vary it up. You sometimes go to the dog and reward. Sometimes you call the dog to you. Mm-hmm. Detection is no different. Once the dog has made the alert, whatever their trained final response is, now it becomes more like an obedience game where you're going to say, hey, sometimes it's going to happen here. Yep. Sometimes it's going to happen back at me. This signal means this, and this signal means that. Or I have one signal. You don't leave until you hear it. And sometimes I'm going to come right up to you and get a signal, give it to you right there. Sometimes it could be back 20 feet. Right. And I I think, you know, is that something that you've kind of, what have you learned as you've done it and kind of, you know, developed it on your own within your own program? Because you took a program that was only pay at source with the typical procedures or yeah. methodology to now this, um, what was, you know, other than the timing aspect, what was the, the, Cost benefit that you saw with your your unit changing to this?
1: i uh, just getting the behaviors that we want a, a lot quicker, right? Because again, the communication uh, through a market system is a lot more precise, right? Because when tra- you know, for example, because we we, th- we do the tra- traditional throw over the head, yep, and at the time you know the hand the dog is looking you know at source. but by the time the ball is in the air, the dog mm-hmm. is already doing you know you know the look back, mm-hmm. right? So having that marker system actually kinds of kind of refines, you know, those, you know, those trained final responses. And then once they're refined, we go to a variable uh, method of reward delivery, which could include a
0: market system or direct, bring, uh, direct you know, over the head. So. Yeah. It's a balance. It's right. If I pour the sand from one jar to the other jar, which is an analogy I use all the time, yeah. it, keeping it balanced is the most important part. The um, So tell us what it's like or give us a story as being a canine handler in Vegas what's something that was definitely memorable that you've done or got to be a part of, uh, as a canine handler in Las Vegas? Um,
1: I guess it's just, you know, meeting, you know, meeting different guests who are, who are, you know, who are dog people. Again, it's just making those, you know, those relationships, um, you know, a lot of, at, at the end of the day, you never know who you're going to meet. So sometimes, you know, we, you know, we meet politicians, we meet, we, you know, we meet celebrities, you know, so it's, it's always a cool experience, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, utilize our dogs, I guess, you know, in that aspect. And being able to experience the different things that, you know, the the, the normal security would not be able to experience mm-hmm. that we get to do, you know, with our dogs. Again, you know, making those relationships, doing the training. Uh, I think on, on the, the canine unit overall, trains the most out of any department. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I love to train, you know, I love to, you know, work the dog. So, you know, just... I love being a trainer and a handler, so yeah, there's nothing better than that. What's been the craziest
0: call that you've done? Me personally, I don't have any crazy calls. Okay, no. I'm, I'm kind of a boring guy. So, all right, what's yeah. one that you've had in your unit that you guys were like, you? Were, uh, oh wow,
1: geez, let me think. We had one where the, where a dog was deployed. Uh, there was there was a transient in the bathroom who didn't want to who, who didn't want to come out. He threatened the handler with a syringe, mm. and you know the handler deployed the dog, and it was a clean bite. Mm-hmm. So you know that was probably yeah that was our most recent bite
0: that we had. Okay, yeah. And what's the? I don't want to call it. You, I don't know, difficult or crazy. Has has your, has your have your dogs found anything, in, as detection dogs, in at work?
1: Uh An actual device, fortunately not. Mm-hmm. But we had we did have one call. Uh, where our two of our one of our handlers was doing a, a sweep of the FedEx mail room, mm-hmm. and the dog had a had a train, you know, he had a positive alert. Yep. We called we called the second dog right to to to, to confirm it. Mm-hmm. Second dog hit mm-hmm. right, so now we go through a you know procedure. We call you know bomb squad. We call Metro. Metro's dog comes, smells the same package, and just defecates everywhere. Wow. So now we're like, you know, now yeah. we get that, you know, that, that, that's that literally, feeling. oh shit moment. Yeah, like Oh shit moment. Right. Yeah. Bomb squad comes, you know, they put on their suits, but you know, they have their robots. Uh, they retrieved this package. So, it, you know, it was leaking some sort of liquid everywhere. Um, obviously it turned out to be, you know, not an actual device, but it turned out to be like a, like a spray adhesive. Okay.
0: Right. That the dogs were hitting on. Right? Interesting. So that was a really like, like you said, oh shit moment. For yeah. us. Yeah what um now you you brought up something that i know in the bomb dog community is super controversial which is running multiple dogs on after a dog has right. indicated yeah what's that like to deal with and why does that happen for you guys
1: uh well again you know in the unique environment that we are like, working casino operations we can't shut down the casino you know every time a dog may it Right. Obviously, there, there's going to be some errors that may be involved, some training issues. So, you know, we like to use a second dog as kind of you know more of a insurance policy, I guess. If you so, want what to happens that.
0: if you have one that alerts and one that doesn't? Do you guys go for a third? Yeah, let me go for a third. And then yeah. with a the third, what so? When, so you basically, you're going for best two out of the three. That helps guide a decision along with other factors. Well, it depends on, again
1: on the totality of circumstance, right? Um, you know, we have other assets that we can that we can use to detect. Mm-hmm. you know, possible explosives, mm-hmm. so we'll, we'll, we'll get that, right? The dogs are just kind of, again, one layer of, yeah. of security that we utilize, yeah. right? And I just hope that the dogs are obviously, you know, successful, so. Yeah. But yeah, we, you know, because when that happened, we had to shut down like four floors above. We had to shut down, you know, a, a whole wide radius, right? Oh, yeah. In the event that, you know, if, one, if it was you know, a uh-huh. device. Fortunately, it wasn't, right? But, yep. you know, if, if we had to shut down the casino, you know, it, now they're losing money, of course, right? and you know, yeah. at the end of the day, of the bottom line, exactly. It's, yeah. it's about the bottom line, right? So yeah. they're not going to let some stupid dog hold that down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, if if I could do it my way, obviously we would do it differently, of course. right? Of course. You know, we're in a casino environment; yeah, yeah. we're not, you know, overseas or whatever it is. If we see a device, and, and that's where I think
0: um, the perception sometimes is not necessarily understood, you know. You guys in an airport are very similar in how things should be run in a sense. Um, I think depending on an individual, both are equally a strong target. Um, Airlines have had far more attempts, so therefore there's different standards and there's a federal agency that's in charge of it versus a commercial entity in charge of casinos, um, which goes to your point of why – They're going to do whatever they can to not shut down if they don't have to. And you guys do have, like you said, a number of layers of things that are in play. Um, And then the other part that's different, not only the whole federal part being at a TSA, in the airport, you guys, like you said earlier, aren't cops. You don't have authority per se to go make things happen. Right. You are, you know, security you advise, you guys are sensors along with many other things such as cameras and a bunch of other stuff that keep safety in its totality to make a a decision. And so therefore, yes, it would freak out a lot of your traditional bomb dog handlers. I, you know, even myself, I'm like, oh, I hate that rule, but I have an understanding of it. Um, And like you said, if as dog, good dog people and And safety-minded individuals as we are, we would do things slightly different. But there's also the nature of the beast. And those are those that that are going to be responsible beyond you if they made the bad call. So that's a tough part because a lot of times the
1: decisions that are being made, those critical decisions, are being made by people who are not subject matter experts at for example canine. Yeah. Right. But again, you know, I try to do my best, Mm -hmm. you know, and fight the battles that I need to fight. but at at the end of the day, You know, If if a decision is being made that's
0: above me, then... The biggest thing that you did was you actually created procedures in place now that didn't exist before. So it gives you something in black and white to react with or as guidance, even for those who aren't. Uh, Let's say you get a security manager or director, whatever the position is, that says, well, why do we have to do it this way? You can say, well, here's our policies and guidelines that say this is what we should do or need to do. And if they decide to go outside of that... That's not your choice. You know, you can't force them to do that. But you can later, right. if something bad happened then it goes to legal and all these kind of things, you can say, hey, here's our policy. I recommended this in line with the policy. The individual chose not to follow that. We did what we were told, and this is what happened. And yeah, it's
1: almost like negotiating a contract. Correct. I'll write up an SOP. I'll send it up. It goes through legal. It goes through the training department. They go, no, we don't want this. We don't want this. I'm like, well, you know – uh-huh. We take it out, okay? It comes back to me. I send it back. You know, it comes back to me. I send it back, and then finally, there's some sort of final version that gets finalized. And, and it is negotiations. You know, exactly, it's negotiations. You, yeah,
0: you, you know, they. I, I've been in that position. You, you fight for this is the way it should be done. Right. This is the, way, and they're like, yeah, not so much. And they push back more than they should. Yes. And then you push back, and then eventually, in negotiation, you find that middle ground. You're not happy, but they're not happy either. But you've got something that's at least creates information and guidance for proper decision-making. So I think that's stuff too that people don't see as you move up in this dog world, you get further away from doing the thing that you started off doing, which is what you love, which is working a dog. I I never would imagine all the administrative tasks that I have to do. Yeah. So, and it's that again, that's the same, whether you're in a small city or you're in a big metropolitan area you, you know, there's so much more responsibilities and then it takes you away from being a dog handler and even the private sector i mean me as a business owner you know i first came here you saw i was out working dogs all the time yep. now where am i at creating curriculum doing writing stuff doing this stuff you right. know it's you know it uh, makes you miss you know, being a dog handler and working dogs and doing that stuff. So those that are listening, if you're if you're a dog handler, you're holding a leash and you love it. Keep doing that yes. for as long as you possibly can, yes. um, or find a way to do the management side of it and still keep because you still push a dog right now, right? Well,
1: they allow me to keep him. He's he's, he's retired. Gotcha. I kind of just use him like for, as my experimental dog. Yeah. So if there's some new training methodology that I want to try out, I'll, I'll him. use him. Yeah. Right, because I don't want to. I don't want it to affect the operational. Sure. Uh, you know, dog. Sure. So. Yeah. But that, yeah, that's definitely good advice. You know, keep being a handler because that's that's actually originally what I wanted to be is continue being a handler. But there was a need of, of a supervisor, right? And then yep. um, I, I was actually hoping they would hire someone from ex- external that had a lot more experience because again, I'm I'm a rookie, right? What the hell do I know about training dogs, right? But
0: you knew in, you knew the internal system.
1: That but was I knew the internal guy. system. I had the drive for it. You know, I, I realized I had talent for training and I was like, hell, you know, I'm, I'm just going to jump it, right? So, you yep. know, I, I applied and then, you know, obviously I got it. Uh, but yeah, if if you can be a handler for as long as you can, you know, try to yeah. do that. Yeah. That's actually what I wanted to be, <laughs> is you know, you know, be a proficient, you know, dual purpose handler. Mm-hmm. There was so many things that I wanted to do with my dog, right? But mm-hmm. obviously, it didn't work out that way.
0: What do you what books or videos would you recommend people to go look at? you like I said, you're in the middle of the journey right now as a new, younger trainer. What's been what's been the biggest influence to you and the things that you've seen? Uh, I mean. Like you said, this is
1: the renaissance area. I think of not only detection, but just dog touring in general because of the, uh because of social media, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, there's just so much information out there. You just have to, you know, have that drive and you just go look for it. Right. I mean, you're in particular, I know you hate when I bring this up, but you had a huge impact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on me because when I first tra- started training, you know, uh, uh, doing dogs, I didn't know anything about dogs. Right. And. When I would reach out to some trainers, you know, or they, they would tell me a little bit, but I almost felt like hitting a paywall. Mm-hmm. Like you tell me a little bit something, but you gotta, <laughs> you know, you gotta pay you, up. You gotta
0: be in my tribe. Exactly. You gotta you do what gotta I tell up you to in order do. to Get yeah. the rest
1: of the information, right? But I didn't get any of that with you. You know, what I mean, I started listening to your podcasts. Um, I started, you know, reading uh, was it police canine magazines. So what, what I would actually do is because uh, we had the police canine magazines at the Venetian, so I would read those. And I would actually manually type out every single article, and then print those out. And I actually made my own like training encyclopedia. Nice, right? Because you know I'm I'm trying to do whatever I can, you know, in order in order to learn. You know, that's when I, you know, I, I ran into you know Jerry Bradshaw from yep. Tarheel Canine. Yeah, he's a good sport guy. He's he was never law enforcement. I was like, yeah, this guy, you know, he's, yeah, you know, he's he's got some knowledge. Yeah, right. So actually, a lot of our training. Um, Methodologists were all adopted from from Jerry because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. he does the PSA stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just there's just so many people,
0: Armin Winkler. Yeah. Because uh, you, know. you still you've kind of started now newly with the Armin Path. I mean, you're part of his uh, Facebook group. Yes. And that's been a fun, beneficial way. Cause you know, me and Michael Ellis joked around, you know, when we were coming through the system, you either had to read a book. Yes. Um, there was some stuff, but very limited online. You had to go in person. Yeah. You you had to go in person and you had to go watch and do these things. And that was such a huge help. Now, like you said, the world's changed. So there's a lot of information. Um, but the biggest, most difficult part I think is weeding through all the information that's available to find what's beneficial for whoever or whatever you do. Um, and then. But you did something we just heard, I, I thought I, I, I liked that a lot, was you then, instead of just going through or, or as quickly as possible, gaining the information, you went and spent time. You wrote that stuff out. Yeah. Typing, re, like retyping those things well, out. I have, I have three thick binders just full of articles that I typed up. Yeah. That That's next level. I mean, that's that, but that makes you retain it. Right. That makes you learn it, you know, as far as mentally. Yeah. You know, then you have to go out there and hands-on and right. apply it and, apply and, it. and then – deal with the curveballs of dogs and handlers that will show you that maybe what you read may not work exactly right. in that scenario, but it gave you something versus now, which is how, like, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm one of those on certain subjects. When you go to YouTube to go watch something, when you see it's kind of over 12 or 15 minutes, you're like, oh, what's the short one? Yep. Where's the one that's like five minutes or six minutes? You want those or, TikTok videos for yes. people with short attention yeah, spans? Just, you know? just give me the, You know, the three second version, you know, how fast can you give this to me and I get what I want? And it's really forced, you know, and I'm sure you're kind of going through this yourself, but me as an educator, how I have to package material now. I have to give information out in these smaller chunks. Otherwise, they'll just blow out, oh, it's a whatever, however long, if it's however many chapters or however many minutes. Uh, So now I have to give it out in these little small segments, and these are uh, digestible for the generation that exists now. Um, Not getting too sidetracked with that. That's like the old man going, back in my day, you know, we used to do it like (laughs) this. But um, I think those lessons, what you just did, writing stuff out, is super valuable for learning. Not only that, I wanted to circle up before I ended here with one thing you brought up that caught my attention – that's finally happening now, thanks to the TikToks and Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts and all that kind of stuff. Is video? Yes. How important has video of training been for you guys, and how do you utilize your video in training?
1: Uh, I use uh, the videos more mainly for uh, our debriefs, right, for training. Um, and it, is this I mean,
0: just um, you as a trainer filming it, or is this sometimes? Uh, POV from the handler like a GoPro on a handler.
1: Yeah. We'll use POVs. or I'll do some videoing, or I'll have someone else videoing, depending on you know the training setup. But mainly, so I, I can see things. Because there's a lot of times I, I can't see everything, depending on the angle and whatnot. Not only that, it helps kind of reinforce you know the lessons that you may want to convey to the the handler, right? Like, hey man, you know I, this is what I this is
0: what I saw, and the handler goes, no, this, this is not what happened, right? But, well, it kind of happened here on the video, right? Yep. So yeah. it's it's huge. I, I've I, I made the joke recently, I think, with Michael or somebody else. We were talking about this, and I was like, you know, I came up from the day and age where we didn't want to film anything. Right. You know, we were so afraid of our dogs or us looking bad. So we didn't want to show that or see that or share yeah. that. Um, on the law enforcement side these days, you have to be transparent. Now, thank goodness, the biggest thing, technology makes it so much easier, you know, what our phone can do, but. What I really love doing is uh, a GoPro on the handler, maybe another GoPro in the environment, or somebody filming in the environment and doing exactly what you said. We implemented that uh, about a year or two in our training program, and as you already know, um, do these video debriefs at the end of every training session. And the cool thing is, depending on all – everybody watches everybody's videos, and I, I do that now in my seminars we will film a bunch of stuff. And then the last few hours of the seminar each day is everybody watching other people's runs. Yeah, And because whether you had a perfect run or somebody else had a crappy run, everybody's learning something. And they all finally get to do what they want to do, which is watch each other run. But when you're doing these – if you're trying to push training, you don't want the person to see what the other person went through right. or the, how the dog went. This way they can, but after the fact. And then we can talk about the good – we can talk about what we could probably improve, but having that ability now as easy as it is, is a huge thing. So it was cool to hear that you guys uh, utilize the videos. In yeah. Your I mean, training. It's, it's
1: something that we just implemented. It's, it's relatively new. I mean, it takes time and effort to do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Particularly when it comes to the debriefing portion, right. And then uploading the video on the hard drive and then, you know, finding the time to, you know, sit down and, you know, actually go through the video. Yeah. Right. But it's definitely, definitely helps. As yeah. As training goes.
0: No, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, I thank you for, you know, getting out of your comfort bubble to sit down here in the studio. Yeah, this is another part of my evolution here is doing a podcast. <laughs> yep. So, my first one. I mean, would you imagine, you know, when we first met, this is where we would be years later? No, because it's funny because, I, I, again, I first heard
1: about you through your podcast. I was, learning, I was listening to your podcast, what, three years ago or whatever it yeah. is? So, I mean, I never would have imagined that I ended up you on your podcast. On the, you're guest on the podcast exactly, now.
0: So. It tells in the true of this is it's the attestment to you. It's yeah. what you've done to get yourself to where, you know, I admire what you do and I want you to share what you did today. And because there's other people like you who we haven't come across yet that are just as hungry as you were. Yeah. And there's payoff for that. And there's, you know... They will be at some point where they can share information to others just like as you are here. So thank you for doing what you do to make dog handlers better and being out there and truly at the end of the day making, you know, your little piece of Vegas safer than other places. And you did it in not the easiest of conditions or circumstances. So my hats off to you for doing that. Thank
1: you. I'm always trying to be better. So there's still so much to learn out there. And again, I'm I'm still learning a lot, you know. Uh, Now, So hopefully one day, you know, when I get older or whatever it is, I can reciprocate that
0: information. Absolutely. It's always paying it forward as trainers. Exactly. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Canines Talking Sense where it's okay to be nosy.